0: Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. What do Legos, Salt Bay, and a cheese truck have in common? Find out on this week's episode of Meat and 3 by Heritage Radio Network. I'm HRN Executive Director Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this week, we're talking red tape. All we want to do is work. We just want to work. But don't worry, it isn't all bad news. Learn how one local leader helped overturn New York City's prejudicial ban on dancing.
1: This is a law that has a long history of being racist and homophobic and being used to go after marginalized communities.
0: Don't miss Meet and Three your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening.
2: and welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Todd Richards, an award-winning chef known for his takes on soul food and southern cuisine. He was named a 2008 and 2013 semifinalist for the James Beard Foundation Best Chef of the Southeast, and he has run prestigious hotel and restaurant kitchens all over the country. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution named his most recent restaurant, Richard's Southern Fried, among the best new restaurants of 2017. His cookbook, Soul, explores his journey to understanding and exploring soul food as a chef. On the show, we'll talk about growing up in Chicago, his advice for young chefs, and what soul food really means to him. Okay, so we are here. um, Actually, not in the studio today. You're my first ever non-studio guests.
1: I I, kind of have that non-studio personality, so (laughs) that's that's, that's quite fine with me.
2: Yeah, and we're here um, at the beautiful, I guess, Time Inc. building in downtown Manhattan. That is correct. On the day of your cookbook release.
1: I mean so uh, being released today is just crazy to me. I'm still I'm I'm sitting here and literally again pinching myself. I had another interview today, I pinched myself then, I'm pinching myself now. And it it seems so um real but unreal at the same time.
2: So first of all, congratulations. Um this is a beautiful book.
1: It is. It, it is stri- uh quite stunning to look at, uh, to pick it up, it has weight and character. And then, you know, just like you did turning the first page and seeing all those pictures of me as a kid. And my sister, she keeps all these pictures. She has hordes and hordes of pictures. And for her just to go in there and just pull these out is magical to me.
2: Yeah. It, um, so this is our first time meeting. Yes. But I feel like I know you because I've spent some time with this. And it's so deeply personal um, about your experiences growing up, where you're from, and also your experiences as a chef.
1: I think they all are all intertwined. Being from Chicago, growing up in a family that, that loved to cook and loved to entertain, uh, going back to the South, reconnecting with some of the same foods that I grew up with as a kid, and then utilizing those dishes uh, in my own cuisine as well as in the cookbook really rounded out my entire career thus far.
2: So, one of my favorite parts is, speaking of Chicago, um, growing up there and you're talking about how you had a southern neighbor and a Haitian neighbor. Correct. And seeing how they use different ingredients in different dishes and that just... Can you talk about that
1: experience growing up? Well, we didn't cook fried chicken at home. That was only uh, able to be eaten next door at my neighbor's, uh, Mrs. Arnold's house, you know, and she was affectionately called Big Ma and her husband Big Daddy, you know, just in the same southern vernacular that we know. And that's where we always had fried chicken. And so we would come home after school and my parents might have been working or something. We get to go over there and she had uh, chocolate icebox pie fried chicken on the stove. And if you wanted something else, she could make buttered toast with sugar in the broiler down down below mm-hmm. and then having friends you know from hating you know who who made fried chicken but made it with such uh different spices and everything and that was really unique to to taste and also understanding that my dad made red beans and rice coming from the louisianas and they also had rice and bean dishes over there at patrick's house you know just that juxtapose of of seeing that same bean taste so different was was amazing as a kid
2: so How much does your time in Chicago, like growing up there, influence what you do
1: now. I think the best chronicle of that is understanding cornbread and understanding that, that growing up in Chicago where sugar and cornbread is is, is a religion and, and taking that to the south and watch people get mad because there's sugar and <laughs> cornbread. But that's the Midwest, you know, and, and understanding it. and the way we utilize potatoes and I think cream of wheat and all those influences there. But also just seeing Chicago Soul food in a different light where it was mostly buffets that we went to compared to being in the south where it's everything is plated and seeing the cafeteria style food as well.
2: Mm -hmm. So another one of my favorite parts is where you're talking about meeting Jacques Pepin for the first time and seeing him in the kitchen and he's talking about French ingredients and French dishes and French food and he knows exactly where everything came from. Um, I'm actually going to read it real quick. The first time I was in a kitchen with Jacques Pepin, he amazed me with his stories of France and French food. He knew exactly where each dish originated and ingredient came from, who crafted the cheese, and who grew the beets. I wanted to be French but then I tasted sushi for the first time, and I wanted to be Japanese. <laughs> so can you talk about that experience?
1: Well, the experiences was there were no African-American heroes on television for, for food at that time. When I grew up in Chicago, my grandmother watching all those cooking shows. I mean, Chocolate Pin, Yang Can Cook, uh, Julia Child, the list goes on and on. I wanted to be all those people because they cooked this really fascinating food and really delicious-looking dishes. So I gravitated to, to French first, uh, just because of the way we used butter, and, and butter was always king in our house, we never used a lot of vegetable oil. But also, my mom had a love for for Asian food, and so having sushi as a kid, you know, in the early '70s, was always fascinating to me as well. Because the way the raw fish and the soy sauce, you know, and the little bit of vinegar and the rice, kind of reminded me of my dad would cook, you know, mm-hmm. and and serving those dishes like that as well. So having those kind of of experiences as a kid. Uh, rounding out, you know, our experience as you know eating soul food makes the, all those dishes you know sing to me, mm-hmm. but still want to be rooted in my own cuisine.
2: Yeah, I. When you were talking about that, I remember the first time I tasted sushi, mm-hmm. my mom took I think it was like a California roll. Mm-hmm. It wasn't anything like crazy, right. but it was like a eye-opening experience, just tasting these flavors that were completely different than what I would have in my household.
1: Well, you know, just growing up in, um, with my aunt, my Auntie Florence uh, knows I love rice. I mean, I would eat so much rice, and then one time she fed me so much rice that I started laughing. And you know, when a kid laughs, rice started coming in my nose. <laughs> (laughs) I ate so much rice. But never ate rice before at room temperature. So, you know, understanding eating sushi the first time is like, wow, this is still really good, and it's not even hot, you know? Mm -hmm. That was really fascinating.
2: So that part that I read in the book, it continues um, where you say, you know, what was my French food? After all, the foods of my people, my parents and grandparents, were not being highlighted on the menus of fine dining restaurants or fancy hotels. The dishes they grew up eating and I grew up eating were considered lowly and not deserving of the price.
1: I think that still resonates somewhat today, that that soul food in general takes the longest time to cook but we charge the absolute least amount for it and and you have to have really great skills in order to make chitlins taste good i mean think about it you got to wash these things 20 times and you got to you know add the right seasoning spice you got to cook it to its tender it takes forever to make it taste good but yet if you you know put that on the menu you can only charge x amount of dollars for it
2: does that still it, does that experience still like inform kind of what you do at your restaurant now?
1: I think it does. It, it really understanding or giving people understanding that, that soul food is not just a pinch of this or a pinch of that. It's really sophisticated in techniques and it shares a lot of the same techniques that you would find in French cuisine or you would find in Japanese cuisine or any celebrated cuisine around the world.
2: So do, what misconceptions do you come up against with soul food?
1: Well, the biggest one is that it's unhealthy for you, and and that's really not necessarily true. You have to understand, like with traditional collard greens, when that fat congealed, all the fat went to the top and it preserved all the beautiful broth and stock and everything down below. So no one would go to a a pot of collard greens and just eat a bowl a scoop full of fat you know that wasn't right. ever the purpose mm-hmm. of the dish you know so it was the broth and and those tender greens and the onions that all went into it that makes that a really warming dish mm-hmm. and and i'll put that purposely in the first part of the book because you had to start with the most recognizable dish for soul food which is collard greens and really say this is the beginning now how do we explore the rest of the way
2: and it's the the gorgeous cover
1: yeah, mm-hmm. I mean,
2: the
1: collard green yeah, I mean, I mean, I love I get tattooed on my arm. You know, collard greens, uh, it's just a magical dish. And just watching my grandmother, who used to make traditional collard greens, who as I got older would get young, smaller collard greens or mustard greens and sautéed them with just a little bit of bacon, onion, and, and cider vinegar and started using sea salt. I mean, sea salt's been this big fad for the last 10 years. As a kid, my grandmother was using sea salt and, and cracking her own black pepper for flavor. Mm-hmm. Those things are, are, are un- not unique to soul food. I don't think they're unique to anyone. It's just about delicious food in general.
2: So you also... In this book, talk about the traditions of dining, not just the dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite parts is the fish fry yes. part. And I love that <laughs> you, put, you put a menu and music. Yes. Um, so just personally, my dad is from Virginia. Okay. Uh, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach area. Okay. And whenever I would go visit in the summers, um, my grandmother would have a fish fry. Mm-hmm. And it, it would just happen that the women would all be in the house mm-hmm. talking and the men would all be outside around the pot mm-hmm. that was on, the like, live fire. <laughs> right. Heinekens, mm-hmm. music playing. That was just... I have so many fond memories of that and the smell of, like, fresh whiting.
1: Yeah, Oh, whiting. Uh, that's, an, that's another great fish.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, as a kid, my dad worked overnight ate at nights, eight in the morning gone on the weekends and so my mom would fry fish for him on friday every friday uh so he can have something while we were gone to grandmother's house or someplace like that And it was just magical, those crumbs, you know, just that crack of the crumb, you know, when you taste it and you have all that seasoning inside of it. That was the first, you know, real inkling of it. My granddad only ate the tail, which I got to uh, eat when he passed away. But having that still all in in a church setting as well, where there's fundraisers for the church and everyone's bringing all their recipes for five fish. I mean, you cannot... uh, um, quantify that except for by the smell taste and texture you know and music has to be a part of it i mean it's culturally uh uh, part of the dining experience
2: so hmm, maybe i'll ask you this question later you Mm -hmm. can think about it now okay but um so i I always ask every guest um, about you know their last meal in the restaurant i'm not Mm going to ask you that yet okay But i think for you i'm going to ask what one song would you want to hear too?
1: Oh, okay. And I, you can
2: you can think about it for a minute. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: we'll keep talking about the book. Right. Um, so, what do you want readers to take away? Like, what's the biggest takeaway?
1: The biggest takeaway of soul is that soul is a cuisine that you know, has this place in the true American cuisine, it is the American food, that you can explore dishes inside so and you can find your own place and that you can keep cooking and keep cooking and find new, little nuances of, of dishes that are steeped in African American tradition that can also be a universal cuisine that everyone can eat and enjoy.
2: So where do you think it's headed? That's kind of a that's a big question. Where do you think soul
1: soul food is headed? <laughs> Where do you
2: think soul food is headed in African American
1: food? I think soul food is uh, in the art of cooking is the last fashion of of art forms that are going through a renaissance. We look at music um, that hip hop has done it. We look at film film has done it. And cooking is a true art form, and it's probably one of the most insane art forms there is. Because with music and film, you can see all those things again. You make that dish, and someone consumes it. It's like it's gone. You know, right. you have to try to you know repeat that and, and it's the last art form that that, that is putting its uh, footprint uh, securely in the ground of America.
2: Do you have a favorite
1: recipe? People ask that so much well wow, you know in 150 recipes are how do you have a, right. what is your favorite <laughs> favorite favorite recipe? And based on your life too right. so it's, it's uh, hard. I, as a chef, I look for the all the simple ones uh, the easiest recipe I think right now in tomato season is just sliced tomatoes beautiful tomatoes there uh, things with seafood I always gravitate to. The lamb uh, chapter is really unique for a soul food book because most people don't think that, you know, contribute soul food and lamb as, as uh, running in the same circle. I don't know. It just really depends on the season for for me to, to... And that's why I like the way the book, you know, we wrote the book that way so that you can just look at the ingredient and then find your way through it and then look at the footnotes and say, this pairs well with this, and you can go throughout the entire book and make all the dishes.
2: Yeah, this book is, it, and I hope listeners understand that this isn't just like a cookbook. This is like...
1: I think it's a recipe for a life book.
2: Right. It's a guide.
1: It, 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 it truly, truly is. It's really telling the story of me from a kid to where I am now, all the dishes that I picked up on the way, and how you can utilize food to bring people closer together. And, and that's the, the biggest take out of it, going back to your, your original question, is that if people sit down and eat and, and consume food together, how much of a better world this would be?
2: How, what was the process like for making this? Like, how, how long ago did this start?
1: Well, you know, the easy answer says I was you know, born to write this cookbook, but that's not really, <laughs> you know, really true. Right. Uh, it, it's about a two-year process, uh, one year of, of, of writing and really getting an understanding of what I wanted to say. I didn't want it to be a book where I am, you know, uh, beating people over the head. I just want people to find the nuances of the journey and understanding it. Pretty much wrote it between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. each each night. Um, good amount of coffee, good amount of champagne, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to get it done. And there's so many people that are on the way that, that came and supported and helped write the book with me and, and the publishers. I can't say enough about the entire team that, that went through the process. And you have a foreword from Chef Sean Brock. Sean and I have been friends for a long, long time. And it's really great uh, to see another subtlety in the book um, that I wanted people to pick up on is that, you know, I'm obviously obviously black, he's obviously white, you know, and we're having this conversation about soul food that needs to happen throughout America. So you have two chefs here who have come from two, obviously different sides of the track. However, you get us in the kitchen our cooking is very much the same. I look at the spices he uses; he looks at the spices I use, and they're pretty much the same. So to have this conversation about soul food and have one of my you know, closest friends write the Ford for it, and I know that distinctly, if you put us in the kitchen together, we're going to cook just about the same, makes it all worthwhile.
2: What do you think that that says about the South?
1: The South right now is leading diversity. It is leading the diversity movement of food. And everyone who contributes to food seems to be having these same kind of conversations. Uh, you look at, you know, the Lee brothers who are great friends of mine as well, who, you know, wrote something on the back, Adrian Miller, uh, John T. H. They're all students and studies of, of the South and much more scholarly than me. I'm just a, <laughs> you know, just a, a, a cook who, who has something to say. But the South is leading the movement of diversity, which is very, very important for our country.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian Miller has been on the show. Yes, he's a he's a fun, fun yeah.
1: time. Oh man, that, and that so is, smart. Like, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I get amazed by by him. I, I try not to talk too much because I don't want to sound ignorant in compared <laughs> to talking to him, <laughs> Just talking to him, you know. But he's a really, really smart guy from Denver too. Yes, know? yes,
2: which you don't think of soul food in Denver, but.
1: You, you do now though you do now <laughs> right. and he yeah,
2: right. yeah he schooled me on, on yeah. the show before so. you
1: know but the interesting thing about soul food is that it does change through region you know the south version of soul food which can be more seasonal compared to uh, New York and Chicago which can be pretty straightforward. But when you get to the west coast it because all these latin flavors and asian flavors inside of it I think that's what makes it uh, really fun and exciting to see and go into eating all these different restaurants
2: so with Richard's Southern Fried, mm-hmm. how does how are you influenced by the South there?
1: Well, I'm influenced by my next door neighbor growing up as a kid who made the best damn fried chicken I ever had, and. Uh, it was always juicy, and I never knew the same. That I never knew how my dad would. She was brining the chicken as well in the buttermilk. She would, you know, put the buttermilk in there all the seasoning. That chicken would sit there for hours, so it's basically being brined before she would fry it. My dad with grilling would do the same thing. You know, he would brine the chicken beforehand. So that's my first emphasis into this, you know, classical French technique that was actually being done by my dad, my next door neighbor. And which is Southern fried is really a homage to that. You know. Fry Fried chicken is a very sophisticated technique. If you temperature of the oil is too hot, you know you'll open it up and just be this big bloody mess <laughs> inside. <Right>. Nobody <laughs> wants to eat it. If the temperature is too low, it doesn't get crispy enough. Uh, it tastes even better cold the next day uh, with a glass mm-hmm. of champagne. And I really want to tell everyone that fried chicken is just not a. a readily commercially produced item. It takes a lot of time, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of uh, trial and error in order to make it taste delicious.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it. Adrian and I actually talked about that, about how, you know, because we see it everywhere, people assume that it's... Um that it's easy to make and that it's not
1: sophisticated, but it is actually very sophisticated. It, it is, I mean, it's time, temperature, you know, really understanding that and listening. I encourage people to listen to if they're using a even a pot or using a cast iron skillet, just listen to the bubbles and the bubbles can tell you when it's ready or when it needs to turn. So it's more of a sensory uh, experience to cook than it is necessarily just like a steak or something you just flip back and forth on the grill.
2: Wow, awesome. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Chef Richards.
0: Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long-chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com.
2: All right, so we are back with Chef Richards. Chef, obviously, and author of this gorgeous cookbook, soul a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes
1: it's so funny when someone says author i still look around like who (laughs) Who who, 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 are they talking about about, you know (laughs) (laughs) like you silly oh okay
2: (laughs) yeah so now we're going to talk a little bit about your relationship with dining yes Yeah. Do you
1: have any early memories of dining? We talked about that a little bit. Man, I mean, we ate out so much. It was crazy as a kid. And I remember going to a steakhouse and the chef came out with this big hat on and pushed a cart around and sliced prime rib and cream spinach. I can remember the lineup. It was cream spinach, prime rib, prime rib, prime rib, mashed potatoes, au jus, rolls, butter, and it's something I always miss right there. And I'm a, a, a horse rider sauce mm. in his cart, and he'd bring it around and slicing that. And I was just so fascinated by the way he looked, you know, with that tall hat on and all the meats that were there. That was my first. Uh, real experience. And then uh, having brunch on the 95th floor of the John Hancock building. Uh, we did Easter brunch uh, there. And that was, you know, had the omelet station, you can go back as many times as you want. <laughs> it had the waffle station, you go back as many times as you want. So those were my two uh, favorite memories, um, especially in that high-end area. Uh, but also just going to, you know, the place to get rib tips. And also in Chicago, you know, that that famous uh, jump that the Blues Brothers made over that bridge. There's a fish market right there on that <laughs> bridge, and just going there and getting fried perch and scallops. I mean, we ate out way too much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was really good and really formative for you to like become a chef. essentially
1: I I, I agree with that. I think hospitality uh, is is always been paramount, even though my dad was a data processor, my mom was a biologist, that hospitality was so important to our experience uh, as a family, just traveling uh, from city to city and just enjoying all the foods that, that we were there. Um, my dad would tell you that it wasn't a burger place, he couldn't turn turn that. <laughs> and, and, and greasier the spoon, the better, you know? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Richard's Southern Fried. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit for listeners? Yeah,
1: so Richard Southern Friday is a fried chicken walk-up. And and I love it because it's in Krog Street Market, which is in the heart of uh, Atlanta and Old Fourth Ward. The King Center is about about six, seven blocks away from there. And I wanted to do a fried chicken walk-up just um, out of selfish reasons. One reason is that we uh, was at the Ritz-Carlton. We entered the fried chicken competition and we won three years in a row. Cool. So I thought it was pretty good. Bragging rights. You know, bragging rights. Uh, then I had another restaurant. Where we used to do fried chicken on Wednesdays and we would sell out every Wednesday. And that became, so I said I really need to open up this this, this place for it. And then this hot chicken phase came in from around the country, but it was always too hot for me after a while that you couldn't taste the chicken. I thought, you cannot lose the flavor of the chicken. So I said, well, let's do it this way. And we open up, and still to this day, I mean, we get lines on the weekends. It's it's crazy. And that chicken sandwich, it's fried chicken, pimento cheese, and chow chow. We actually make Mm -hmm. our own pickled cabbage for it on a potato bun and it is sinful. And you can get it, you know, <laughs> you know classic hot or Richard's hot. Richard's hot is the hottest level we go. You can, It's still plenty of heat, but you can still taste everything inside of it. And for a place this small, it's only 400 square feet. Like uh-huh. we, we cut our own wedges still, and so we pickle our own cabbage in this place. So it's still a fine dining setup uh, or a fine dining approach and making a really gourmet fried chicken sandwich, but I think it's the best in the world.
2: I think... Atlanta has a, like, criminally underrated food scene?
1: Uh, You know, at one point in time, Atlanta suffered through two periods. After the Olympics, we had all the chefs from around the world wanting to come open in Atlanta, thought it was cool, and the Atlanta... Uh, rejected all of them. You know, they, they went away. And then we had this Charleston influence where Atlanta became a shrimp and grits town. And now Atlanta is becoming a unique personality of its own where everything is centered around everyone's neighborhood. So in, in your neighborhood, just like I live in Grand Park, there are six taco places, and they're all uniquely different tacos, all done differently, but they're all so good. You know, And it's really become more of a community-focused neighborhood restaurant scene, which to me makes it just like New York in a sense how a community-focused neighborhood scene it is here.
2: That So, um, Richard's Southern Fried is not your first time being behind the stove by any means. You have no. a very lengthy resume working yes. with some of the best chefs in the country. Uh,
1: the The first time I really got into the national scene, I would think, will be in Ritz-Carlton, West Palm Beach, uh, because we took a floundering hotel um, that was number 28 out of 30 in in the company and took it to number one. And what we did was we really embraced the locals um, more so than the people that were traveling to the West Palm. So we started having seafood night on Fridays and things like that, got local fishermen to bring us products. And that's really when it started for me, and then going to the Oak Room in Louisville, Kentucky, running a five-diamond restaurant, one of 42, 44 in the world for five years, wow. uh, was was very unique, and that's when I received my first uh, James Beard nomination in 2007, I believe that's what it was.
2: So why is it important to be in Atlanta now? What, what do you like about being in the city
1: right now? Well, one thing, it doesn't snow that much. <laughs> <laughs> right. I drive a convertible on a motorcycle, and it doesn't rain that much, so that's the fun, fun part about it. I, I, uh, uh, you, Atlanta is uniquely positioned as still the gateway to the South you have to fly through there all the time. I have chicken and beer in Concourse D and One Flew South in Concourse E. So I get to see a lot of people traveling and, and we get to understand the stories of people and how to make that a universal uh, approach in those cuisines, but also in Atlanta, you have so many young and up-and-coming chefs who move there. Uh, that are trying to prove themselves. And with real estate booming and access to the capital being a little bit greater than any other part of the country, you have more opportunity to open restaurants in Atlanta. Mm.
2: So what... Since you were talking about those younger chefs that mm-hmm. have something to prove,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what what advice do you give younger chefs?
1: Well, it's funny because I was looking at my Instagram uh, other day and they called me the OG chef, and it's like <laughs> I'm not that old, guys. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, wait, <laughs> wait a minute, and he said, "No, you did this," and it's like they remember more things I've done than than I could probably remember myself. But the biggest advice is, is never never compromise on on standards uh, of your cuisine. You have to compromise in a lot of the ways, you know. You know, you can't always control when the fish guy shows up, you know, with the deliveries. You can't always control labor, especially in a market where labor uh, is is very, very hard to find right now. But you can never compromise on your standards of, of cleanliness and what it takes to make food delicious. And if you keep that in mind and keep your own integrity in mind, then everything else comes pretty easily.
2: So, um, back to dining,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what is one of the best restaurant experiences you've ever
1: had? Wow. That's, I mean, like I have this top five list, but it keeps moving a little bit. <laughs> uh, I would say uh, most uh, recently, eating at Dominique Crenn, uh, that whole experience was was magical. I, I uh, We just got married, uh, my wife and I went there on honeymoon and was literally dancing at, at the table, uh, just singing the praises of, of how delicious the food was. But, you know, coming to New York, eating at uh, La Silla, where it's this Cajun-Chinese restaurant, that serves you with chopsticks but you got to go in there and grab the seafood out of the sauce and your hands are sticky and you're eating and no one around is talking because they're just shoving shrimp (laughs) and, and, and crawfish and crab legs in their mouth. I think always my best dining experiences are surrounded by people that I love and generally care about. So I can go from high end to Dominique Crenn to you know, an Asian restaurant like this, or I can go to Waffle House in, in Atlanta and and eat you know scattered smothered covered you know hash browns. It's really about the people who I'm dining with that makes it a great experience.
2: That's that's so true, and I mean that that comes through in your book too.
1: Most definitely, I, this book is about sharing, and and it's about cooking together. Uh, as well in encouraging your kids to cook. Uh, with you and some of the recipes are are, are even I think kid friendly like making and I know you don't like uh, cook fruits in your in your pies <laughs> as you as you to as to you said on a previous segment that we won't but making we won't talk that. about that but, but making like blueberry hand pies with your kids and you can make a few ahead of time and freeze them and then you can just pop them in the toaster oven or fry them and utilize them that way which is a great way and then having the sauce left over so if you have waffles you can utilize it. It's all about coming together and, and sharing that experience. And even having a soundtrack in there, because we're encouraging people to put their phone down while while, while eating. So we have a soundtrack in there. So you put the music on. It's like, man, you know, we're creating a whole experience in the cookbook. That's the same way I grew up as a kid. My mom would, would be there um, cleaning or, or watering plants. She'll put on Nina Simone or Bob Dylan. My dad will be in the kitchen for breakfast, You know, making bacon and smothered potatoes. That's how it was. We didn't watch a lot of TV growing up. Mm.
2: So, we talked about the best, mm-hmm. now let's talk about the worst. What's one of the worst dining experiences you have ever had? And you don't have to name names, but you can if you want to.
1: No, I don't even remember the name of the hotel. We were traveling to Niagara Falls. We drove from Cincinnati, Ohio to Niagara Falls, and we went there to a hotel. And we were staying at the hotel, having breakfast, and the server there did not want to wait on us because we were black. So, oh, wow. so so you have these great experiences growing up in Chicago at hotels and understanding hospitality and service. And I never experienced, you know, understood what racism was or anything like that until sitting there. And then my dad had to explain to me because my dad is a very fair scam, you know, African-American. My, my mom was it was about as, you know, brown complected uh, as I am. And they did not want to serve us um, because. He said, he just told the mayor di I don't want to serve them. And the mayor d asked him, who is them? You know, them, those people. And that shaped a lot of soul as well, because I talk about how dining has to be universal. It's the ultimate form of freedom to cook and share a meal with someone. And you take that away from someone. You're denying them an existence in life. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, that's um, a big reason why, well, first, that, that story is horrible.
1: Um. It, it's horrible, but it also it fuels me. I mean, it makes mm-hmm. me excited to cook for people and to show them that, that, that this food that we have is, is for everyone. We don't just necessarily keep it from ourselves. It's not our nature to keep things for ourselves. You know, we want to share this with everyone, so it fuels me. And and when you ask me that question, that's the only story I can ever think of because everything else, I take it with a grain of salt.
2: Mm-hmm. That um the idea that dining has to be universal is why the show exists because mm. to me everybody should have a seat at the table. Everyone should be able to go into a restaurant and feel taken care of and as a society it's where we go to celebrate, to break up with people do
1: just don't break up in my restaurant I'll right. <laughs> you know? right. I leave, I leave that to other people but who do that a little bit better than me it's the third
2: space where we all go you know to enjoy ourselves and let our hair down and relax I
1: I, I, I agree and it shouldn't be of any uh, judgment You know, when you see uh, things that happen in this world and people get judged, or or the biggest thing is how they call a person out on a receipt, and you know, we assume that everyone is smart. You know, (laughs) and if you're smart enough, smart to at least erase it before you. I mean, you don't deserve to work in hospitality. You know right
2: right uh, but for the record i've hmm? never broken up with someone in a restaurant i've just seen it happen
1: oh well <laughs> that's
2: uh, i just want to be clear yeah that, that. That, that,
1: that's one of the worst things you know i mean how do you break up with somebody with delicious food in front of you that's what i i just can't understand yeah. the logic behind maybe it. you
2: go somewhere you don't like uh, i don't know oh
1: well, well maybe not me <laughs> I, don't, I you know I am newly married, I am loving my wife. I don't have that problem to worry about so right. I'm good.
2: <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So our last question, um, if you could have your last meal in the restaurant, where would it be and who was invited?
1: I, I probably wouldn't invite anyone. Uh, I, I don't think that celebrating uh, my last meal with sad people around me because I'm about to depart is going to be something that I want to do. And I'm not sure about a restaurant per se, but I do know that dish is just soft scrambled eggs, caviar, and a glass of champagne. Mm. And and I, it's funny just the softness of the eggs, that luxurious, uh, the caviar, that that beauty of champagne. I mean, that's the way to go out.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's by yourself, and, and what's the space like? Where are you eating this?
1: I, I wouldn't say it's on the beach. I would say probably somewhere in the country. Uh, a little bit of town home, a lot of vegetables, garden around me. You know, I, I tell my cooks all the time, say, hey, if I ever kill over on the line, just put me in the freezer and tell them to come pick me <laughs> up the next day. <laughs> you, you know, I, I I never really think about um the future that way, nor do I think about the past that way. I think so is really the way I feel about the world that you have to talk about the now, and how to celebrate what's happening right in front of you, and not get too bound to shape of what took place before, and too worried about what's going to happen in the future.
2: So, what music is is playing?
1: Uh, definitely, uh, I would say three albums uh would be Stilly Dan's uh Asia album. Uh probably Nina Simone's album and Ray Charles would probably round round it out. Um, and then on the way, right when the eyes are closing, <laughs> uh John Coltrane, My Favorite Things.
2: Oh, that's a great, great playlist.
1: Yeah. It's in a book.
2: Yeah, and <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and you were the first guest I've ever asked what music would be playing because yeah. it's usually just. Well,
1: like, you, you know, know, chefs are nothing but musicians and actors that never made it. <laughs> 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 that, that's really where where we are. In you know, Sean being a person who contributed to the group and, and wrote, wrote the forward, uh, he plays uh, a really mean sly guitar. Uh, I play keyboards and organs, and I think that when we retire, we're going to have the best uh, chef band there you go. In, in the world.
2: Career part two. Yeah. Done with chefing and now a rock band.
1: Yeah. I don't know how much rocking we're going to be doing <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, at, at, at that age, because once a chef, always a chef.
2: Right. <laughs> well, Chef Richards, thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: It is my absolute pleasure.
2: And thank you so much for listening. Please check out Soul. It is a gorgeous gorgeous cookbook that you'll enjoy. And I'll catch you next week on a Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.